Welcome to Adaptify. I'm Mike. I'm a paraplegic from New Zealand, and it's my mission to find the Adaptifiers of the world, people who have overcome challenges and found new, creative, interesting ways to be free despite needing to use a wheelchair for their mobility. Hey there, everybody. Thanks for joining me once again on the Adaptify podcast. For all of you out there who have supported our Kickstarter for the Lapstacker, thank you so very, very much. We really appreciate your support. By the time this goes live, there'll only be a couple of days to grab a Lapstacker via Kickstarter. And if you haven't checked that already, we'd love your support to take us home. It's at Adaptify.com. Today's guest is Josh Jerk. Now, Josh is an absolute icon in the adaptive community. His video of doing a backflip, the first person to ever do so, gained the attention of Ellen DeGeneres and over 500 million of her viewers. He is the nicest of guys. He has the ability to reflect on his career and impart some incredible wisdom for those of you today. Josh, it's such an honor to have you on the show. You gave me hope and inspired me to live life as a wheelchair user with passion and gave me hope that I could once again feel freedom in my life. Thank you so much for that and welcome to the show. Uh, pleasure, Mike. It's so good to be here. Hey, Josh. So for those of our listeners here that don't know who you are, and I'll be very, very surprised if there's any Tell us a little bit about you and what uh, what sort of makes you tick, and I guess to set the scene, why you are part of this adaptive community. Oh, fully loaded question, Mike. I'll do my best to keep it trim. <laughs> uh, I grew up in a small mountain town nestled in the heart of the Kootenays in British Columbia, Canada. And I grew up the son of a logger, so my dad was very keen in the outdoors and uh, exposed me to those environments, those rugged, rough, mountainous environments from an early age. And specifically just for wood gathering and the basic necessities of keeping warm through the winter months. It was a little bit later on in life that uh, through a school field trip, I was given an opportunity to learn to ski and fell in love with it right away. And uh, it's, I've never really looked back from that moment in grade eight where I was like, oh man, I'm going to be a professional ski bum and I'm going to live in a van down by a river. And I had these <laughs> grand visions of what life might look like. It shaped up a little bit different, but the essence of it stayed true, right? I've been a professional skier. I've lived in a van down by a river. And uh, the, the story has come full circle in many ways. Throughout high school, I joined the local freestyle community and participated in moguls, big air, and uh, made the provincial ski team after high school and competed with them for nearly four years with a goal to make the national team. Uh, that goal was close to being achieved, but I, I missed the mark by one spot. And after four years, I just ran out of financial resource, didn't have the money to keep up, and was forced to quit, which was perhaps one of my first real experiences with heartbreak because I had and I, I still love the sport so much. Mm. And uh, to be pushed to the side was a bit of a drag. Um, but I wasn't willing to give up completely. And I got involved in coaching. And uh, I, I take a step back, actually. My coach, while I was still competing, really encouraged all the athletes and saw a ton of value in us taking the coaching certification courses so that we would become more knowledgeable as an athlete and so that we would also have that transition strategy in place should we want to stay involved in the sport afterwards. And uh, that's exactly what I did and got into coaching and accelerated quickly. And within a couple of years landed 
um, a pretty sweet job as head coach program coordinator for Silver Star Freestyle Club here in BC. And uh, still to this day, one of the strongest freestyle programs in North America and the largest freestyle club in Canada. So I, I moved up quickly, had a great time doing it. And uh, while coaching a group of my athletes, I sustained a why I made a mistake. I uh, came into a jump way too fast and overshot the landing hill, overrotated the front flip I was doing and landed chest heavy, dislocated my back, severed my spinal cord and was immediately paralyzed from the waist down. And this was back in 2004. Uh, and, and again, you know, those dreams of that kid in grade eight, that fire still burned strong. And uh, one of the, the first good strokes of luck I had after breaking my back was in the hospital, you know, only a few hours after the injury had happened. The doctor in the emergency room looked at me and looked at the prognosis and came in and he must have had to really have a pep talk with himself before he came in and had a pep talk with a 23-year-old mountain kid. And he looked at me and just said, quite frankly, you're going to rock the world from a wheelchair. And before you know it, we'll have you back in the mountains riding a sit ski with all your friends. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know where he found the strength or the the direction that he gave me, but he did. And he gave me hope. And that, that hope was a powerful tool in creating change in my life. And uh, within, I don't know, several months, I guess my injury was in March and I was back on snow the following November and just learning to ski casually, recreationally, and with the intention of showing the kids that I was coaching that when bad things happen, we need to dust ourselves off and get back up. It was a pretty innocent goal to start with. And, mm. and very quickly it, it turned into an opportunity to get involved in ski racing and uh, ultimately achieve that goal of skiing for my country in the, the games in Vancouver, 2010, and uh, again in Sochi 2014. So Mike, that in a nutshell is a little bit about how I got involved in skiing. That's pretty long winded. I told you I'd try and keep things trim. I'm not very good at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I want to, I want to hear it all, man. I want to hear, you know, exactly how you think. And uh, so that our listeners out there can take away some of your, your knowledge uh, one question sprang to mind early on was you talking about coaching and, and I'm curious to know your thoughts on what makes a good coach. Wow. What makes a good coach? Geez, I've had a few really great coaches in my life and the best coaches are the ones that haven't like a, a passion for the sport and an ability to articulate it and communicate it to the athletes. I think that's pretty important that they really care and they invest themselves in it wholly and completely but also a coach that has the ability to be challenged. So just kind of the way I operate and some of the coaches that I've had support me and my goals. Um, when I challenge their authority, when I challenge their direction, their decision in, in a civil way, like I need to be respectful as well. Mm. But when I challenge them and they don't take it personally and they don't get offended by it and they're curious and they want to learn more, they're like, wow, this athlete's looking at things a little bit differently. Let's explore it with them rather than taking it personally. Like you, can't challenge my authority, son. You know, I'm the coach mm. for a reason. Mm. Uh, those coaches are big fails in my book, but the coaches that have an open mind uh, and a willingness to learn with you, I think is such a valuable asset. And fortunately for me, I've had um, some great coaches that are firm and that, that are challenging. You know, they challenge me and they challenge the programs, but they're also open and they're willing to explore. I think that's just huge. And that's probably why I found so much success 
in my sport is because I, I have uh, a strong will, a strong passion and the desire to grow. And I'm not bound to convention of what other people have done before. So my challenge when I challenge coaches is not out of a place of disrespect. It's out of a place of curiosity and to grow. And uh, again, I just shout out to fellas like Rob Cobert, who was my freestyle coach when I was a mogul skier and got me involved in coaching. Uh, shout outs to Jean-Sebastien Labrie, who was the head coach of the Paralympic program throughout the entirety of my career as a ski racer. And both of those gentlemen really exemplify those values that I was talking about. That's fantastic. So for the listeners out there that may not understand spinal cord injury, you have a T11 thoracic uh, injury. Is that correct? Can you just explain what that means in real terms, uh, in terms of function, uh, in terms of the physiology that, that has uh, – you know, makes, makes an impact on you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you nailed it, Mike, you got a T11, T12 dislocation of my vertebra. And when the vertebra dislocated, it severed the spinal cord. And basically the spinal cord is the information superhighway that connects information to the body from the brain. And when that road is closed, no information gets through. So that that's left me without sensation below from the belly button down. And also, it's left me without the ability to control uh, my lower limbs. So that's uh, basically, it's, uh, my, my legs are still with me. I still need to take good care of them. I stretch them. I massage them. I move them around with my arms. But uh, effectively, they're just my friends that I carry around these days. So tell me, why do you stretch your legs and why do you massage them? What's the, what's the logic behind that? Well, Mike, I, I got turned on to yoga early on in my sport career, and that was just literally a tool that I used to stay flexible and uh, allow my body to take impact at speed and be able to recover quickly. Mm. And since I retired from sport, or at least from competitive ski racing in 2014, I've spent a lot more time playing with and practicing yoga, uh, and, and I see that as a bit of a medicine for my body. And so why do I, why do I stretch my lower body? Why do I do that? Well, it's, it's hard to put into words. Uh, some people say energy, some people say chi, some people say prana. Uh, mm. uh, I, I don't know. I just feels really good when I put my, my entire body into a place of alignment. So alignment for me, you know, if I put my legs straight out in front of me in a seated position and, uh, you know, my toes are pointed straight up and I'm, I'm stretching them out in a way that alignment to me, it feels like, it gives a little bit of structure and boundary to my existence in the universe. Mm. And when I have structure and boundary, I feel my whole body, even though like doctors will tell you, and I'll tell you, I can't feel hot and cold if it was pressed up against the skin of my leg. Mm. But when I put my body into a place of alignment, give it direction, give it boundary, then it's, it's, uh, it has reference in my life and in the world around me. And when I have reference, I feel it. Uh, otherwise, you know, the paralysis has left me, uh, you know, when I don't pay attention to my lower body, it's kind of left me like this mystery of like chaos. Um, and I'm not directly connected to it and it's not a part of me, but when I do find time to stretch and take good care of my lower body, it fuels me in, in some strange way. So it's, it's, it's my curiosity more than anything that has me f- stretching and, and maintaining flexibility with my lower body, uh, and I bet a lot of other people like physiotherapists or occupational therapists would you know, advise that, hey, it's just good to keep things mobile. It's good to keep the joints mobile and the fluid moving and uh, all that jazz. And you know, we were given a body, and even though I've damaged it, I still think it's important that I respect it. Nice. 
Hey, so your your doctor, which is uh, really interesting to me because you hear a lot of stories of doctors coming into the room and saying, you know, you're never going to walk again, right? They, they put that preconceived idea in, in, into a person's mind and it, it may be the likely outcome. But in your case, your doctor gave you some hope that you were going to rip again. Now, you, you, you're basically on this course to fulfill your dream and, and follow your, your passion for ski racing. And what was it like once you were on that train? There must have been times where you were so consumed by that that you lost sight of other important things in your life. Was, was there some moments that you encountered that you thought, whoa, hang on, I'm, I'm a bit out of balance? And how did you find yourself getting back into balance? Such a good question, Mike. And I think it's only been hindsight that I've been able to recognize how imbalanced my life had been at certain points in time. Uh, because when I was in the game, uh, I lived and breathed it. It was my passion. It was my love. And, and uh, it was my first choice in, in everything that I did. You know, my life revolved around my identity that I had created over 25 years. Mm. That Josh Duke is the skier. And uh, I became recognized for that. And uh, I loved it. I love everything about mountain culture. Uh, I love everything about the sport of skiing. So at the time, it never really felt imbalanced. It didn't feel like sacrifices were being made. It just felt like I was living this incredible dream. Um, and and my, my goal was just to be in the mountains every day or as much as I could. Uh, the competition, the success, the accolades didn't bother me at all. It wasn't a priority. It wasn't something that I concerned myself with. Um, it was my responsibility to Team Canada to perform well. And I, I wanted to honor that responsibility. But uh, at the time, just living the dream. Now, when I look back on it, I don't know how my wife has put up with me for the last 15 years because um, how <laughs> shitty would that, like now, now I can see it, like how shitty is that for her to be number two? I'm, I was an asshole in other ways. I don't know if I use this exact word, but like, don't bother me now. I'm focused on my job. Mm. And uh, I'll give you a poignant example. Actually, when our daughter was born in 2013, it was on the doorstep to the games in Sochi. And uh, I was very focused on downhill and Super G and I couldn't see the beauty for what it was. I couldn't see the magic of having a, a brand new baby girl in our life and the stress, the unbelievable stress that must have put on my wife from carrying the child, delivering the child, and now nurturing this child. And she just asked me for one specific little, like, do you mind, do you mind walking Nova? That's a funny word. She didn't say walking. <laughs> do you mind taking care of Nova? It's the middle of the night. I'm super exhausted. And I just looked over, quite frankly, I'm like, nope, I'm training downhill tomorrow, and that's super dangerous. I need my sleep what an asshole. Oh my God. In the moment, I didn't think anything of it. It was just very logical in my brain. I'm like, I'm running downhill. I'm going to be going 120, 130K. I need my rest. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, my wife had just, you know, Nova was three months at the time. And anybody who has children understands that it's a shared responsibility. You know, mom and dad both contribute in different ways in order to make it possible to raise a healthy human being. And I was, you know, in hindsight, so incredibly imbalanced in my priorities and in my goals and my awareness of the gifts that I've been given in life, such, such as a beautiful wife and an amazing child. And uh, I was like, nope, <laughs> I'm skiing tomorrow. Like, how ridiculous. At the mm -hmm. time, no, didn't seem bad. Uh, looking back in the rearview mirror, I'm like, oh, my God, how did she put up with me? Uh, <laughs> it, so, so you asked the question, like, how did I deal with it in real time? Well, I, I didn't. I was just living a very selfish dream. 
Um, and there's nothing wrong with being an athlete and there's nothing wrong with being focused on bettering oneself. And that's the beauty of sport. Mm. Um, but there is a balance in, in to your question. I don't have an answer to the listener out there right now. Like how do you find balance in your sport and in your life at the time? I don't think I did. For those of you listening who don't know the relationship that, uh, that Josh and I have, or that the part that Josh has played in my, my story, my journey, when I was two weeks into my recovery as a paraplegic, a friend of mine sent me Josh's video. It was a Solomon-made video of Josh skiing through trees and hiking cliffs and, you know, Josh's story essentially. And I had no idea that as a paraplegic, as someone who used a wheelchair, that you could do that sort of thing, uh, you know. And until you're in this environment and this community, you just – I had no idea. You know, I, I thought that if I became paralyzed, I just thought my life was over and someone might as well just roll me off the edge of a cliff. And I saw this video of Josh skiing and much like Josh had been given hope by his doctor uh, who told him that he could, you know, rip again in the mountains, seeing Josh's film gave me immense hope. And, you know, seeing Josh and seeing how much attention he got from his success and, Josh went on to become the first person to do a backflip in a, in a, in a monoski. I often wondered whether or not that, uh, that success and that uh, attention, fame, if you will, how you, how you could manage that and whether or not the distraction of all that took away from you know, what was your key focus. And so I'm curious to know how, Josh, you were able to stay focused on the task at hand and and not get, uh, you know, and basically stay grounded? Mm, super good question. Uh, well, first of all, I just want to give a shout out to Mike Douglas and Solomon Freesky TV for putting together that story the way that they did, um, which was communicated around the world time and again. And uh, so stoked that it's elevated your spirit, Mike, and came to you at the right time in your life. And I know it's, it's had that effect on a lot of other people. And like you, um, prior to having my injury, I didn't know what life would look like if I ever had an injury. And um, about two, three days prior to breaking my back, I ran into a kid my age at a beer store. And he was doing the same thing, picking up a box of beers, probably going to go hang out with his buddies. And that was the same plan that I had. And I couldn't even look at the guy. I wouldn't make eye contact with him. I just felt like, what a shitty life. And if that ever happened to me, I was convinced I would just park my wheelchair in front of a train and just make it look like an accident. I thought there'd be no way that life would be worth living in that kind of way. Uh, and, and for you, you know, my story came through YouTube, which was cool. Back in 2004, YouTube didn't exist. And it was just uh, a fella in the community who also had spinal cord injury, um, uh, put himself in a mentorship role and reached out and said, hey, bud, I've got a second sit ski if you ever want to go and give it a go. Uh, I'll be here with you and, and I'm happy to support whatever it is that you want to do. And uh, he was able to reach out at the right time. And, and that compounded on the doctor's words of wisdom or uh, his projection of hope. And uh, I was able to get into skiing and, and off I went. Your, your question though, Mike, was more about how did I manage celebrity? And uh, let's call it what it is. I'm not Michael Jordan. I'm not one of the New Zealand All Blacks. I'm not a super famous celebrity. But after uh, doing that backflip, landing on the Ellen DeGeneres show, there was roughly 500 million people that had viewed my story uh, in a span of about six months. So wow. there was a large percentage of the world's population that was tuned in 
to this guy in a wheelchair that was doing some pretty cool things in his sit ski. And, uh, you know, back to my dad, who is a logger. Um, uh, I think my family really loves time in nature, uh, really loves time for contemplation. Uh, we really enjoy um, quiet time. So being in the public profile or having some celebrity was not my thing at all, but I very consciously chose to embrace it. One, because taking on a good challenge is important for anybody. Uh, two, it, it helped me to offset uh, a little bit of this reality of knowing how selfish my behavior was to be so focused on my task. Um, I wanted to do something altruistic with it. I wanted to create a platform to be able to communicate a message of hope to other people that are going through difficult times. So I accepted the public profile and celebrity as a part of my job. And, and I felt it was very important for me to embrace that wholeheartedly as an athlete that was being supported by a community of people to allow me to live out this dream. And, uh, and, and so I enjoyed it for that window of time, you know, between uh, say 2005 and 2015, that, that 10 year window where I was really engaged in the support and uh, overcoming a lot of hurdles that come with spinal cord injury. Um, I wanted to communicate that to the best of my ability and uh, you kind of alluded to, I've kind of, I dropped off the media radar in the last couple of years very intentionally as well, uh, just to give myself a break and to, and to, to refocus my energy on the family. But uh, not that I really need to give it a shout here, but I'm still as active and as engaged as ever. You know, mountain biking is a big pulse in my life, surfing, skiing, and then bringing these opportunities to my family. And uh, it's funny, people think you're dead if you're not on social media. And I just want to remind people, uh, I'm very much alive. And uh, <laughs> so, so to be doing the things that I'm doing and communicating in real time with real people and uh, reach out and connect with uh, a larger audience, it feels really authentic and feels really like I'm, I'm excited for this because I rarely do it. Uh, so uh, shout out to you. Thanks again for having me on. Josh, I see on your website that you are involved in a number of different organizations. Uh, out of those organizations, uh, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about the ones that uh, that you're either most involved in or, or you feel like mentioning now? Uh, there's, there's three that I really focus a bunch of energy on, and they all share the same ethos, and that would be Spinal Cord Injury BC, the Live It Love It Foundation, and High Fives. Uh, and they're, and, and we're all like the, the focus is common, uh, in that we provide experiences, outdoor experiences for people that have recently sustained life altering or spinal cord injury. And, uh, the, the values that we have is really, and the experiences that we want to provide are, um, empowerment through adventures so that could be anything from surfing, skiing, mountain biking, hiking, uh, just spending time outdoors and that, that that sensation that we all get when we're outside in nature, fresh air and exercising. Uh, and, and exercise is a funny word, but we just want to get people outside and stimulated. Uh, and then the other component that, that really uh, we focus on is healing through community. And that's bringing in mindfulness, uh, meditation, yoga, nutrition, and, and community so that we can all work together with one another as we move forward through adversity and challenge. Uh, so that, that's where most of my attention goes to, both in my heart and in my time. Hey, well, I have seen a really amazing promo video of Live It, Love It. Uh, is, has that been uh, – is that live now? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check it out because uh, 
a visitor from the Rick Hansen Institute uh, met with us recently and uh, he shared, I'm pretty sure it was Live It, Love It Foundation, uh, about exactly that in, in empowering uh, you know, those with physical uh, disabilities to get back into the outdoors. And uh, and I saw your face amongst all that, so I thought perhaps that's, uh, that's the organization. Yeah, 100%. We, uh, the, the film that you're probably referring to is living on Vimeo, I, I think. Maybe it's YouTube. But uh, basically, we created this little trailer that tows behind a snowcat. And we partnered with an operation called Mustang Snowcat, uh, Mustang Powder. And uh, they tow this trailer that houses four sit skiers in it all around the backcountry and up high into the mountains. And then they just drop the, uh, the tailgate down and then we ski right out of the trailer. And it gives us an opportunity to experience the backcountry in a group environment. Uh, initially, when I was exploring in 2008, 2009, and uh, well, I guess through even currently today, most of my experiences in the backcountry have been as a solo sit ski athlete. And now we've been able to develop some community uh, in these environments, which has been spectacular. We've had uh, huge success in bringing people into this environment and just blowing their mind on hill. And then we go back to this really posh lodge that Mustang has built. And we're able to focus again on that community building where after we've had a phenomenal day in the mountains, everybody's buzzed and they're just feeling great. Um, then we can sit them down and do some grounding exercises through yoga, mindfulness and then open up conversations which often allow people to explore their own their own experience in ways that maybe they haven't been able to articulate before because we've created a safe environment for people just to be real sign me up man i <laughs> I'm, I'm there I love, i'm so there that sounds fantastic um i was curious when uh, you know, like Revelstoke is a ski area that uh, that I remember well as a an able bodied skier, and you know they got a gondola there, and I've never ridden a gondola with a sit ski. How does that work? What what do people do to to make that work? Well, typically it's my uh, oh how I put this nicely. It's it's not my favorite way to get to the top of a mountain on a gondola. It's a bit of a challenge. Mm. It's not impossible, and some resorts have. Uh, like little skateboards that you can kick the ski off of the sit ski, hop on the skateboard and roll in, mm. but you're no longer autonomous. Now you're depending on a little bit of support to make it happen. Mm. Uh, Revelstoke is a unique situation because uh, when you're in the village, I'm in my wheelchair. I go on the gondola. I go up to mid mountain, which is where the gondola stops. Mm. And then I get into my sit ski mid mountain and then I ski all day off the chairlifts and then I get back into my wheelchair and download on the gondola. So in that particular environment, it's no problem, no big deal. Mm. If I was to be bound to doing laps off of a gondola, it might kind of change my approach for the day mm. uh, just because it's, it's a bit of a pain to, to have to do that. Um, yeah, sure. But again, if, if anybody is out there thinking about going for a ski and gondolas are your only access point, give it a go. It, it's still worth it. Um, and if you're thinking about going to Revelstoke, it is only a commuter lift. It's just to get you to the real terrain that you want to be at anyhow yeah true that's very true uh what do you see as some of the biggest challenges facing our community the uh the adaptive community right now and how do you think we can overcome these challenges oh mike i'm not sure i'm the best person to ask that question to what are some of the biggest challenges that uh the spinal cord injury community lives with uh for me i would say access and visibility to the outdoor amphitheaters that we all enjoy and we all love. 
Um, sometimes it could be as simple as signage saying, hey, you know, this trail is accessible and a short way down the pathway, you'll find an accessible washroom. Now, <laughs> there's probably not too many places around that are actually fully accessible outdoor amphitheaters for us to enjoy. Uh, and I would love to see more of that, you know, so a policies in place um, so that parks are positioning themselves in a way to be universally accessible. And then also signage visibility so that the, the parks and outdoor areas that are accessible for all people um, are well known. They're, they're um, easy to access, easy to find. For example, if I come to New Zealand, I wouldn't know where to begin other than calling you. Say, Mike, what's up, bro? <laughs> I want to come check it out. And I, I want to get a proper experience while I'm in New Zealand. What does that look like? And, uh, you know, it seems like it's an old school hack. I need to know somebody. And that's fine because I know you. But in general, if, if I was going to a place that I didn't know, I would sure like to have a trip advisor or somebody like that jump on board and give me a map of uh, what accessibility means and, and where I can go. I think part of the issue is actually categorizing what accessibility is because to lump it into one category, uh, you know, it, it, these days, you know, accessible is, you know, a one in 12 gradient. It's a nice concreted pathway. It's, you know, um, so I know there's a bunch of work being done here and, and I think other places too. One of our former podcast guests, Helen Smith, is, is working on this to re classify accessibility and give it a scale give it a give it a rating if you like so um you know i've been to places that are, are not classically termed accessible but they were accessible to me with uh with a freewheel you know for example on the front of my wheelchair and um you know someone just to help me up the first couple of steps onto the trail or with the, you know some sort of equipment you know a hand bike with a with a trailer attached to the back so i think part of the challenge is actually reclassifying accessibility and, and uh, documenting um, what the trails are and what what hurdles may be in the way for people with accessibility issues and it's not just wheelchairs it's it's people that may um, may Maybe hard of uh, seeing. It may be, you know, all sorts of other um, uh, perceived limitations. Um, so yeah, I know there's some work being done. That Jezza Williams from Making Tracks, he's pushing forward into the uh, tourism industry to educate and encourage them to um, implement some changes to the way they um, provide for people with disabilities. So I, I totally agree with exactly that point and. You know, recreation is so uh, important to me as it is you, and um, and so yeah, I, I'm I'm hoping that uh, anyone out there listening that uh, uh, has an IT background um, may be able to, to build on a platform um, such as this, so that Josh, you can come to New Zealand or go wherever you want and tap into the recreation opportunities and actually understand. I suppose part of the other challenge with that, and I've had a few people email me recently to say do you know somebody with a hand cycle over here that I can borrow um you know because you know without that equipment it's uh, it's you know it's going to be difficult to access some of the places in the in the back country so i think there's some opportunity there for a um you know a shared uh, mobility equipment scheme or or swapper um uh, you know swapper piece of equipment type uh, type organization so Tanel Bolt, um, to her credit, is uh, you know has the Rad Recreation Society, and she's trying to make these uh, pieces of equipment easy to rent, um, which is which is great. So I mean, there's things happening uh, 
around the outlines. Um, and for anyone out there listening who wants to uh, be part of that movement, then um, hey, just reach out to me. I'd um, I'd be keen to be involved as well. Yeah, that makes two of us, and there's probably a lot more. And I'm glad that you mentioned Tanel. She lives uh, just down the valley from where I'm at. And uh, her Rad Society and her goal of having these CCAN containers filled with a library of equipment that would be posted around the province at all the, the best locations uh, where a person could come in and just on their phone, through their app, they can open up the container, pay a nominal fee, uh, access the equipment and uh, a, a mapping system of where to go. She's at the early stages of this concept, but wow, what a great concept that she's got. And if she's able to see it through, I think it's going to be a game changer here locally in BC, but also a good template globally. Um, as to like rating the trails, you had mentioned that a bit earlier. It could just be as simple as like borrowing the way ski resorts have ranked them green circle for beginner blue square for intermediate and black diamond for more advanced. Uh, and whoever is listening that wants to jump on helping to, uh, you know, write some policy or work with some it, um, make it playful, make it fun, right? We don't need this to be sterile or serious. Um, we just need this to be fun and indication signposts along the way. We still like any other human being want things to be challenging. Uh, we just don't want them to be impossible. As, as to your other point you had there, Mike, you know, um, uh, accessibility means a lot of different things, right? Uh, I'm in a wheelchair, you're in a wheelchair, Mike, and we're pretty capable. Um, and then you throw a freewheel on, and and I was thinking when you had mentioned that, because I have one too, I use trekking poles combined with the freewheel. So the freewheel for the listeners out there is just basically like a wheelbarrow wheel that attaches to the front of the chair and takes the weight off of those small casters, the small wheels in the front of the wheelchair, so that you can negotiate more challenging terrain. And then if you add trekking poles to the equation, then you've got the full upper body, the lever, push and move forward, propel yourself forward in ways that uh, I can keep up with um, a casually paced mountain bike. So I can cruise through very challenging terrain that most wheelchairs wouldn't dare at a good pace. So not only am I getting through the environment, I'm getting some exercise out of it and uh, covering a good deal of ground. Um, but universal accessibility, you know, for a person in a chair that could be tetra or quadriplegic and needing a power chair. So wheelchair access is going to vary in a huge way. Mm -hmm. And then there's the, the people that are hard of hearing or visually impaired uh, that, that would also need to. And then there's another gamut of other um, accessibility concerns that I, I don't even know about, but they're out there. Yeah. Um, so I would suggest anybody who's starting it, start it with uh, something simple in mind, like wheelchairs, wheelchair users, and then scope it out and then build on that, build on a solid foundation and uh, explore. And it sounds like, Mike, you've thrown your hand up. I have as well. I know Tanel's on that program. So there's people with expertise that would love to work with you. Um, my team at Spinal Cord Injury BC, the team at Live It Love It, the team at High Fives would all love to dive into a project like this with you and there's already conversations started so uh, get a hold of mike and then mike will get a hold of us and we'll do something great fantastic hey i, I really love that idea of the uh you know the trekking poles with the free wheel i've never tried that so uh so i, I definitely will um do you have any other uh you know i guess wheelchair uh hacks like any setup um tips that you could share with other wheelchair users listening? 
Yeah, well, the, the one that I think of off the top is there's a company called BodyPoint, and they have developed a series of belts and harnesses for wheelchair users. And uh, traditionally, I would think of a belt or a harness, like a seat belt, mm. uh, for a wheelchair user as a limitation or a sign that you're not capable of sitting upright on your own. And uh, that was a funny mentality I had until one day I thought I'd just give it a try because life is an experience. And I just uh, threw a belt, a lap belt, onto my chair. And uh, with the intention of being able to do chin-ups with my wheelchair attached mm. to my body. Mm. And uh, that, that has given me a new control and a new sense of connection to my wheelchair daily. So that's pretty nice. And, uh, you know, a set of stairs, if the hallway or the corridor is narrow enough that I can reach the handrails on either side, I can grab those handrails and effectively do a little tricep press and walk up a flight of stairs with my wheelchair attached. So now I've removed a barrier. Wow. Staircases. Wow. Out of my equation. And uh, what a trip. What a trip. Wow. That's nice. Hey, uh, this is a little plug for a product that we've just launched called the Lap Stacker. Um, Essentially, it's a retractable strap uh, for securing items to your lap. Uh, in, in a wheelchair. So just uh, attaches to, to a manual wheelchair at this point. It will be for power chairs and um, self-locking strap. So, I mean, that could serve, uh, you know, the purpose very well for um, securing your legs um, so they don't uh, come flopping out if you're doing chin-ups and that sort of thing. Um, it's on Kickstarter right now. Uh, it'll bound to be finished by the time this is aired, but uh, but it'll still obviously be available on Adaptify.com. Check it out. Um, Josh, hey, before we wrap up, I'm curious to know what the future holds for you and, and uh, you know, your family life. You've got a couple of young kids. What do they, what do they know about your, your life as a wheelchair user? How do they feel about it? Um, do you have that conversation with them as a, as a, as a parent um, to, to children? Well, they, they, they know me as dad and, and like any parent, that's what kids see as dad and they don't see anything other than that's normal. Um, so in terms of the celebrity component, uh, they, especially my daughter who's five now, she gets a little bit of that. She sees me, um, you know, um, connecting with people in the community that I might not know personally, but they know my story. Uh, and, uh, she's seen video clips and some of her classmates are like, that that's your dad. So she's got a bit of an idea, but in reality, um, I, I, I retired from sport with the intention to spend more time to family. So, um, the dad that they know is a dad and not a sport star or whatever. I, I wouldn't, I don't even know if that's the right way to phrase it, but, um, they know me as a guy who wants to be at home with his kids and wants to spend time with them. And, uh, you know, I've kept a, a tickle trunk full of newspaper clippings and video clips that maybe one day if they want to learn more about what dad's past look like, mm-hmm. they can dig up into that treasure trove and, and learn more. But uh, we, we just focus on what is in the moment in our household. Uh, so nutrition's huge. We do a lot of cooking and uh, meal prep with our kids, even though they're five and two. You know, that's a big part of what life looks like in our home. And uh, yoga is a daily practice in our household. Um, so they, they witness dad do that. So that's probably more the impression my kids will have. And day to day, you know, I take my kid to karate. Nova's uh, in her first year of karate, dance, and gymnastics. My son, he's two years old. Well, he's just a growing concern. So we just need to keep up with him in whatever direction that he's moving and just keep him out of serious trouble. But we love <laughs> to give him an opportunity to challenge himself and be curious. 
And, uh, they, they, you know, here's the funny thing is I, I'm, I'm an athlete by trade. I'm an outdoors person, um, in my heart, but I spend a lot of time doing administration for freestyle BC. So behind the scenes on a computer mm-hmm. and a bunch of time with spinal cord injury, BC planning camps for people to recreate that have had spinal cord injury. So mountain bike camps, yoga camps, surf camps, etc. So a lot of the work I do today is on a computer and I, I don't know what else to say other than I'm embarrassed or ashamed of that as a trade, not what I do, not the effect that I'm having, Mm. but more so the fact that dad's on a computer. So I don't really let them witness that a whole lot. I I lock myself away in our furnace room. uh, And that's why I'm podcasting with you today at a coffee shop because my furnace room is guaranteed to be. um, And I just don't want them to see because they don't really know what dad's doing on a computer. Mm. And I don't let, and that's why I'm not on social media is because I don't want them to think that being on your phone or being on your computer for hours on end is normal behavior. And uh, you know, to anybody who's listening today that, that really is uh, techno- technologically savvy and they really enjoy their time on the computer, I don't mean to pass judgment because I think it's important for each of us to find what we're passionate about and fulfill that. And you know, for me, that's time in the outdoors. So it's a bit unnatural for me to be spending as much time administrating, but it's also, I, I can see where I'm going with this work. So I value the time that I'm doing this type of clerical activity. I just don't like my kids to see it. I know it's a bit of a tangent, Mike, and I apologize to the listeners. No, no, it's good. It's, it's a, it's a really good point. I think in this, in this world where, you know, you just need to look around and, and 95% of people are looking at their phone instead of uh, talking with each other. I think it's really important to recognize that. And, um, you know, and I, quite often will catch myself or my wife on our phone at the dinner table or, you know, and, and our son sitting there, you know, just observing. And I think, I think you're on the money by ensuring that that isn't seen as normal human behavior, even though, you know, it it is normal human behavior now. I don't think it's a healthy behavior to, to have, um, so no, great point, man. I, I really, I really think that's that's fantastic. Really interesting observation. You're clearly incredibly mindful of uh, you know of the impact on your kids and um, and on your own life. Look, you and I are both positive people. You know, sure, we've had some moments that have been dark and challenging and uh, frightening, um, but you know, we we seem to have this positive aspect on life. What uh, what advice would you give? those out there listening now that aren't in a positive space and just can't find a way to get into a space where they're happy with their life? Uh, I would say be gentle with yourself to start. Uh, If I was as ruthless to other people as I can be to myself sometimes when I am in those darker places, when I'm feeling depression, if I was as unkind and cruel to other people, uh, nobody would ever look at me or talk to me. So how, how can I justify being that mean to myself if I would never treat another person that way? So be gentle with yourself. Just, just, uh, take in a deep breath. You know, sometimes I just, I find time to sit tall, almost, uh, envision myself being like a flower reaching for the sun. So my spine is nice and straight. And I just take in a few deep breaths and that in itself has the ability to relax me in that moment when I'm feeling wound up, anxious, stressed, or depressed. Um, so taking a deep breath in is a really good first step. Being gentle with yourself is so important at all times. And, and I suppose like in a bigger picture, like give yourself a light in the darkness, give yourself a little, uh, lantern or a candle 
so you can see where you're going and set some goals. Like what, what makes you tick? What makes you happy? Um, and for me, I know, and I've mentioned it to you before, being outdoors makes me really happy. I think that's a really good form of therapy. But some people are really artistic and find painting therapeutic. Uh, some people are musical. Some people are incredibly intelligent and like to solve equations and problems. Find what you're good at. Become the best that you can be. Be a master at your craft. And you'll be amazed what that does to the people around you. It will lift them as it lifts you. And uh, then as you become better, you make the world around you a better place. So finding goals, finding purpose. I, I feel like so many people are devoid of purpose. And in that place of devoid, uh, how can you not be depressed? How can you not be anxious? How can you not struggle just a little bit if uh, there isn't a need for you and your skills? But trust me. Whoever you are and wherever you are in your place, there is a need for you. You are here for a reason. There is a purpose. I encourage you to uh, surround yourself with good people. You know, we are products of our environment, both the physical environment and also the lived environment, the people that we choose to be around. So be around great people and uh, find purpose in your pathway in life. And I suspect that the challenges and the darkness will become less and the opportunities and the light will become more. Such powerful words. Josh, thanks so much. I think that's a perfect uh, way to, to end this, uh, this podcast. Uh, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure to, uh, to reconnect with you. And, uh, and look, I really look forward to uh, having some time in the outdoors with you in the future. I see that uh, as, a, as a real possibility, particularly with our links both in New Zealand and Canada. So um, thanks once again. Uh, for for those of uh, for those listening, uh, and Josh, where can where can people learn more about you? Um, and um, you know, so where where do you hang out online, if if at all? BCFreestyle.com would probably be the uh, most visible portal. Although it's nothing personal about me, it's just the association that I work for. But that's where I'm most active. Uh, you'll you'll see some of my work come through the Live It Love It Foundation, the High Five Foundation, LiveItLoveIt.org, High Five Foundation.org. Uh, my website, I should update a little more, which is joshduick.com. Uh, for a guy who doesn't really care to be online, that's a lot of options uh, for people out there. Uh, I would say keep in touch with Mike and Adaptify because I really look forward to bringing my family down uh, to the land of the long white cloud, Aotearoa. My father-in-law, Akapita Horangatangi Hopapa, is from Rotorua. And, uh, you know, he goes back to visit his family every couple of years. So I look forward to joining him in his campaign to go back to see his family in Rotorua. And when I do that next, Mike, I'll let you know. And uh, it'd be great to connect with you, your family and your friends in person. And you know, you're always welcome with my family here in Canada. And I'd love to show you around. Thanks so much, Josh. I'll uh, I look forward to that immensely. All right. Well, uh, kia, ora, kia ora to you and enjoy the rest of your day over there in Canada. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and meeting today's Adaptifier. To learn more about Adaptify and the products we have in development, products that will increase freedom for wheelchair users, go to adaptdefy.com. That's A-D-A-P-T-D-E-F-Y.com. We're also on all the major social media platforms at Adaptify. Follow us there for more behind-the-scenes looks more up-to-date information on product releases. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Look forward to catching you next time.